Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to NCF. Want to say thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day. Even though it is getting a little bit colder, the sun is still out. And we're still gathered together, so many things to be thankful for. We especially want to welcome those of you who may be visiting us for the first time. If you're here at the invitation of a friend, co-worker, sibling, uh, just a random stranger who told you to come to their church, uh, thank you for coming and joining us today, especially if you are here considering the claims of Christianity. No doubt to come into a place that maybe you've never been to before, like a church, can be somewhat intimidating, and we are so honored that you are so courageous enough to come and to grace us with your presence. And so without further ado, would you mind bowing your heads with me one more time as we ask for God to bless our time together. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will now be with us, that you would speak to us so that we would know that not only that you are God, but that you are God who is for us. Lord, we have many things going on in our lives, many things that can cause us to be so distracted, so discouraged and dissuaded from living a life that you have called us to live. And yet, Lord, we are here because we trust that by the summoning of your spirit that brought us here, you will now give us the hope and the conviction that we need to live out our new identity in Jesus. And Lord, I do pray for those among us who are here as our guests. We pray that you will speak to them as well to where they would come to discover that who you are is truly the hope of the world and their hope as well. Lord, we pray now that you will bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So here's the opening question. What do the following people have in common? Whitney Houston, Matthew McConaughey, Ray Lewis, Kanye, Justin Bieber, Manny Pacquiao, Prince, Mel Gibson, Cole Hamels, Denzel Washington, Clary Cl- Kelly Clarkson, and Beyonce. Anyone know what all these individuals have in common other than the fact that they're very, very rich, famous, and wealthy? Give up? All of these individuals are very vocal about how important God is to them. All of these people that I've just named have been very vocal publicly on how important God is to them, whether it's in the context of receiving a prestigious award, whether it be Oscar, Grammy, where they say things like, first off, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for this award. Or maybe it's even in the context where they're standing behind in a pulpit somewhere in the churches across America doing what I'm doing right now, giving a message. It turns out some of the most rich and famous in our society today are really into Jesus. And it turns out Hollywood has taken notice and they're trying to cash in. Case in point, a few months ago, there was an article that came out in the very popular magazine, The Weekly, and entitled, it said, uh, in the title article, it said this, Hollywood's Big's Bet, Big's Bet, Big's Bet, oh, good grief, Hollywood's Big Bet 
on Christian movies. Listen to what this author says. Quote, Christian movies are on the rise. Just this weekend, I can only imagine a religious indie film about the best-selling Christian music single of all time stunned observers by raking in more than 17 million. Good for third place at the weekend box office. This is hardly a random occurrence. In 2015, the Christian publication Movie Guide charted that the number of films with strong Christian content has steadily risen from 16 in 1996 to 65 in 2015. Annual box office receipts from these films during this period skyrocketed from 200 million to more than 5 billion, and it's only getting bigger. End quote. Now, this is really odd if you think about it, because one of the things that we were taught by the media is that Jesus, according to our culture, he ain't cool. He doesn't fit in. He's not culturally appropriate, right? And yet we cannot deny the fact that these Christian movies are being cranked out by Hollywood of all places, raking in the billions and billions of dollars to where you can't help but to wonder, is Christianity going to become so acceptable to where even the rich and famous will see it as a figure of significance and status to where they would want to embrace it and accept it publicly? And if that is so, does that mean a person like me, a pastor, would welcome this change, would see this as a wonderful thing for our culture, as something that I would really want to celebrate publicly? The answer, no, I wouldn't. I'm terrified by the idea that Christianity could become essentially a hashtag faith to where the rich and the famous, the bold and beautiful would valiantly make it all about them and say, I'm a Christian, and it would cause them to have such high Twitter points and high Facebook feeds. I do not like this idea that the Christian faith would become such cultural status in our society today. Why? Well, that's the question that I want to answer today. But first, we're continuing our sermon series entitled, It Feels So Wrong, It Must Be Right. It feels so wrong and it must be right. And the point of this series is to spotlight some common feelings that Christians everywhere struggle with, feelings that don't necessarily feel good, feelings that are downright discouraging. And yet the Bible would say the fact that you feel these feelings are an indication that you have genuine faith. And today, we're going to take a look at the third common feeling that most Christians struggle with throughout their Christian life, and that is always feeling so insignificant, so unimportant in the eyes of the world. I want to argue the case today that one of the ways that you know that you are a genuine, devoted follower of Jesus is that you are insignificant in the eyes of society, and that is actually a good thing. And to parse that out for us, we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul is going to help us understand why that is the case. And to do so, he's going to share with us three things in his teaching. Number one, the Christian's call to be insignificant. Number two, the reason Christians are called by God to be insignificant. And finally, how, or excuse me, the way Christians can truly be significant. Okay? The call that we Christians have to be insignificant, the reason God gives us for why that is so, and finally, how to truly be significant. Okay? Let's jump right in. First, the Christian's call to be insignificant. Read again with me the beginning, verse 26 of our passage, where Paul writes the following. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Here, Paul begins our passage by reminding the Corinthians a very unflattering fact about them. And that is, many of them were very insignificant in many categories of life. 
They were insignificant in terms of their education, hence they were not wise. They were insignificant in terms of their achievements and influence, hence they were not powerful. They were insignificant in terms of their birth and cultural background, hence they did not come from noble birth. In other words, the Christians that made up the church in Corinth were essentially a group of people that the greater society would have labeled as unimportant, unimpressive, and uninfluential, i.e. insignificant. Now, with that now in mind, you would be tempted to think that this particular church in Corinth must have been the modern equivalent of those storefront churches that we see scattered throughout the inner city, right? Just a little small church made up of a bunch of people in a not-so-well-to-do part of the city, you know, people mostly from the lower socioeconomic ladder. But if that's how you think, you're going to face a problem. It's a problem that Paul clearly lays out in verse 26, because in that verse, he says a statement that refutes that kind of conclusion. He says the statement, consider your calling. Now, you see that word calling? That's a word that's used in the Bible to describe God summoning, calling certain individuals and certain people to be his, to be his people, to be his crew. And if you ever do a case study of the Bible where you only focus in on the kinds of people that God calls to be his own, you'll notice an interesting pattern. And to show you firsthand what I'm talking about, let me read you four biblical passages as a good sampling of what I am trying to say. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 7. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Jeremiah 1. The word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. (coughs) Luke 5. Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And finally, Luke 14, the servant returned and told his master what they said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the towns and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. And so his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone who you find to come so that the house will be full. Full. So for none of those I first invited will even get a small taste of my banquet. Notice how in each instance where God is calling somebody, summoning a person or a group of people to be his people, there's always a consistent type of person who are called. And who are they? People of low status, people of inferior capabilities. That's the recurring pattern that you see. Now, with that in mind, what do you think Paul is really saying therefore in verse 26? You know what he's saying? He's saying that when the Corinthians are a bunch of unimpressive people, he's not simply saying what's true of them. He is saying what is true of every of God's people that includes them. You see, one of the things that Paul is trying to teach us today is that one of the ways that God calls us to live our Christian life is to live a life of insignificance. Let me say that again. One of the things that God calls you to do as you live the Christian life is to live a life of insignificance. Now, please don't misunderstand. I do not mean that God calls us to live a life of mediocrity, to live a life of underachievement, to live a life of laziness. But what I am saying is that God calls us to not obsess of trying to be significant in the categories of how our culture defines significance. You see, the problem is not pursuing significance. 
It's rather pursuing the kind of significance that the world says is significant. Because the Bible teaches us that the way the world tells you to be significant is absolutely antithetical to what God says makes you significant. In other words, the kind of person that the world says you need to be in order to be significant is not the kind of person that God calls you to be when it comes to being significant in his mind. Okay? What do I mean by that? Consider these words from Pastor Joel Stoll. He writes this. Our compulsion for significance makes us vulnerable to a host of personal failures that complicate life and debilitate us spiritually and socially. It may surprise you to learn that many people have affairs not because they are drooling with uncontrolled passion, but because for the first time in their lives, someone has come along and made them feel significant during a time when they especially need it. We are quick to violate basic principles of stewardship and burden ourselves with debt to accumulate things we don't need, but enhance our significance on the social scene. And to advance our significance in the marketplace, we may violate our integrity as we exchange a clean conscience and our commitment to Christ for a significant title on our business card, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying that when you pursue the categories of significance according to our culture, you become a terrible person. You become a person who is apt to cheating on your spouse, cheating on your taxes, and cheating on people so you can get ahead. Now, that in and of itself, I believe, should be sufficient reason to why we Christians should not strive to be significant according to the world's standards. But you know what? For Paul, he's going to go even further because he's going to show us another reason, a greater reason why we should not pursue significance according to our culture standards. Because as he's going to show us, the underlying assumption behind this greater reason is what causes people to be like the ones that Pastor Stoll just spoke of. And to further explain what I mean, let me go to my next point. The reason Christians are called to be insignificant. Let's pick it back up where we left off, starting in verse 27. It reads, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing that Pause right there. Your attention, please. Here, Paul highlights for us the primary reason why God calls us to a life of insignificance. And he says it right there in verses 27 and 28. To shame the wise and to shame the strong. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to shame the wise and to shame the strong? Well, to answer that question, I want to draw your attention to something. You'll notice in those two verses that I just read, you find three phrases that sound very similar to one another, right? Three phrases that convey one idea, right? Verse 27, it says that what? God chose what is foolish, and then God chose what is weak, and then in 28, God chose what is low and despised. Three similar sounding statements to convey one idea, namely God chooses certain types of people. But then... If you go look at the second half of those three statements, you'll see another similar sounding pattern. Why did God choose the foolish? So he could shame the wise. Why did God choose the weak? So he could shame the strong. Why did God choose the low and despised? So that he could, oh, hold up. Wait a minute. Something is a little off, right? Because what you expect to read isn't there, right? What does he say instead in that second half of the third statement? Does he say so that he could shame the high and esteem, which is what you expect? That he, <clears throat> what, he, he chose the low and the nobody why. So he could shame the high and the steam. But he doesn't say that. What does he say instead? He says, to bring them to nothing. 
Wait a minute, Paul, what's going on? What, why are you all of a sudden disrupting this beautiful pattern? Why are you sticking this statement out like a sore thumb there? The answer? Because he wants us to pay attention to that last statement. He wants it to pop out. Why? Because he's using it as an explanation to what it means to shame the strong and to shame the wise. It's a literary device, right? He does it on purpose so that it would stick out so that you would come to understand that what it means to shame the strong and to shame the wise is to bring them to nothing. Still confused? Because you have no idea what it means to bring someone to nothing? I draw your attention. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. It reads, The living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. That's right. Paul is talking about death. When Paul is saying that he or excuse me, God wants to shame the wise and shame the strong, what he's really saying is God is going to bring them to death. That's how the wise, that's how the strong are ashamed. That's how they're humiliated by their death. Now, with that established, you're thinking to yourself, that sounds weird, (laughs) right? Because when was the last time you ever saw someone's death as a humiliating thing? I mean, when was the last time you ever went to a funeral, right, of someone you know and you felt humiliated for them or you felt embarrassed for them probably not often probably not never right we usually feel sorrow maybe even anger for the person who died but very rarely if ever do we ever feel embarrassed for them so why would god (coughs) say that when the strong and the wise are dead that they're humiliated that they're shamed does that make sense how do we make sense let me attempt back in 2012 there was a very um cool prominent sci-fi movie called prometheus anyone see the movie prometheus okay obviously not very cultured people i see right right it's the much anticipated prequel of the aliens movie that was a huge hit back in the 1980s so given that almost 99.9 percent of you didn't see the movie and those who have were so ashamed to lift up your hands i'm not right let me give you a quick synopsis right set in the future these scientists discover an ancient star map, right, that was scrawled on the caves of some obscure part of Scotland. Now, what makes this star map so amazing is that these scientists found the same identical star map in other ancient cultures that were so far removed that they had no way of interacting with this other ancient culture in Scotland, right? And so these scientists are like, oh my goodness, what does it mean? And so they see this constellation map up there, and they're thinking, what should we do with it? I know. Let's go and follow the map. That's a great idea, right? I'm sure there's nothing threatening there, right? And so with the backing of the whaling company, which was a trillion, a billion, a trillion uh, fortune company, right, that focuses on making uh, artificial intelligence androids that look like fully human with the backing and funding of them these scientists follow this star map and they end up on this planet where they meet the engineers who are the engineers well it turns out these engineers are highly evolved aliens who created mankind yeah turns out in the movie right these aliens these engineers were the ones who created humanity that they spawned life on earth they were our quote-unquote creators now, in the DVD, you, you, you didn't see this if you saw this in the theaters, but if you get the DVD, there's a deleted scene, okay? I really like the movie, okay? <laughs> get off my back. Not that I believe in aliens. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is not an alien. But anyway, <clears throat> if you go on the DVD, right, 
You can borrow it if you ask, but if you ask respectfully, all right? But if you, if you look at the deleted scene, there's this interesting uh, dialogue that happens between the CEO of the Whalen Company, an old, decrepit man by the name of Peter Whalen, dialoguing with one of these engineers. You see, unbeknownst to the scientists, Peter Whalen stuck onto the ship so he could have the opportunity to dialogue with one of his creators, right? Because he wanted to ask for a specific thing. You know what he wanted? He wanted to live forever. He wanted for eternal life. And when he asked the engineer, the alien, for more life, the alien responded, What great thing have you done? Who are you? What have you achieved to where you think you could ask for such a thing? And then the next words that came out of Peter Whelan's mouth were the following. He said this, quote, Do you see this man? He's pointing to one of his, his androids, right? An amazing android. My company built him from nothing. I made him in my own image so he would be perfect, so he would never fail. I deserve this. You see, you and I, we are superiors. We are creators. We are gods. And gods never die. Gods never die. Here we see in the character of Peter Whalen, the underlying mindset that he and so many like him, the rich, the powerful, the wise, the strong, have about themselves, namely... I'm not a mere person. I'm not a mere man. I'm not a mere mortal. I am a God. I am someone who deserves more than what mere mortal man could ever have in his life and then some, right? You see, the Bible teaches us that when the world tries to strive for significance, it's not because the people of the world are chasing after a higher self-esteem. No, the Bible says the people of the world chase after significance according to the world because they're trying to chase after a delusional esteem of themselves. A delusional esteem of themselves. Right? Namely, I am more than just a man. I am a God. A God that can't die. Hence, you understand now why the death of a powerful person, whether they be rich, whether they be famous, whether they be intelligent and beautiful, is so humiliating, right? Because if there is one thing that can refute the underlying assumption that these kinds of people carry about themselves, the way that they try to flaunt themselves as if they're more than what they're not, is their own death. See, scripture teaches us that one of the ways that God humiliates and subjugates and embarrasses and shames those who try to elevate those who try to boast in his presence as if they are more than what they are not is through their death. Psalm 49, listen to what it says. Listen to this, all you people. Pay attention, everyone in the world, high and low, rich and poor. Listen, why should I fear when trouble comes, when enemies surround me? They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily, for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Those who are wise must finally die, just like the foolish and senseless, leaving all their wealth behind. The grave is their eternal home where they will stay forever. They may name their estates after themselves, but their fame will not last. They will die just like animals. So don't be dismayed when the wicked grow rich and their homes become even more splendid. For when they die, they take nothing with them. Their wealth will not follow them into the grave. In this life, they consider themselves fortunate and are applauded for their success. But they will die like all before them and never again see the light of day. People who boast of their wealth don't understand. They will die just like animals. The Bible 
reiterates that one of the most delusional people that walk on the face of the earth are men and women who by chasing after worldly significance exemplified in the form of wealth, beauty, fame, status, success, right? Are truly pathetic people as it is seen in the fact that one day they will die and because of their death, they are utterly ashamed. But here's the thing, folks. This shame is not only reserved for the day when they die because this shame can come early on in their life and it does for everybody, in fact, through what the Bible sometimes calls the shadows of death. You know what the shadows of death are? It's death coming slowly, creeping up in front of your life that manifests in the forms of strong muscles becoming weakened, sharp minds becoming dull, amazing talent fading away, right? The shame of the strong, the shame of the wise comes upon them even before their own death in the forms of the shadows of death. It is inevitable to where they will feel utter humiliation because the things that they look to that made them feel significant is being slowly ripped away from them and they have nothing that they can do about it. So now you understand the reason why God does not want us to chase after worldly significance, why he calls us to be insignificant in the eyes of the world. You know why? Because he does not want his children looking like a bunch of fools. He does not want his people to look delusional and idiotic and stupid, right? To think that they are something when in fact they, like the rest of all creation, are nothing. Right? For you parents in here, do you take pleasure when your son or your daughter makes a fool of themselves? No. Because it makes them look bad and also makes you look bad. God does not want you, his followers, to be so stupid and pathetic and a loser. By having these grandiose views of yourself that is so inconsistent to who you really are, you see. And this is something that we Christians need to grasp. You know why? Because I'm afraid that some of you guys get so easily intimidated by the criticisms of the world. You know one prominent criticism that people throw against Christians? They say things like, you know, you're only a Christian because you're psychologically weak. You're kind of a loser, Right? You're so weak-minded that you need a crutch to believe in some fairy tale because you can't make it elsewhere in the world. So you have to create this make-believe belief system so that as you participate in it, you feel more significant because you can't cut it out in the real world. And so you create a make-believe world with a make-believe God to make you feel significant. Right? That's the common criticisms that the world throws at us Christians. Right? That our faith is so <clears throat> sad because it makes people who are sad and pathetic feel like they're something that they're really not, right? Significant when in fact they're insignificant in the world. In fact, people have used this passage in 1 Corinthians 1. Critics have used this passage to validate this very idea. A second century critic of Christianity by the name of Celsus once said this, quote, there Christians' injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought to us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly by that fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God. They show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaved women and children. What he's saying here is, back when Christianity was growing prominently in the early world, is that, man, these Christians, the only people that they can draw to, to their faith, are the stupid, the uneducated, right? 
young children don't any better, women who aren't educated in the world, right? That's the underlying mindset, that, that they're the ones who are so sad and pathetic. But yet, in reality, it's people like Celsus and the underlying assumption that he has about himself that I'm a god. They're the ones that are deluded. They're the ones who are idiotic. They're the ones who are really sad. Do you see that? And you couple that with some of the behaviors that people like him do with their God complexes, whether it's cheating on their wives, cheating on their taxes, cheating in their, their work to get ahead. Who's really the sad case? Who's really the pathetic one? I am so bothered by the fact that some of you might get so embarrassed by this idea that we Christians are a sad case, that you've bought into what the world says about our faith and what therefore says about you. Can you have more confidence in knowing that you are not the deluded ones, but the world is the deluded one? Because they're the ones who chase after something that's driven by a false assumption of themselves. We're the ones who are sober-minded. But I wonder, is that what you believe? You see, one of the things that I feel Paul is trying to teach us here is for us to have more confidence to have more assurance that the things that God calls us to may not be significant in the eyes of the world to where we may be considered sad and losers and pathetic, but in the eyes of God, is so amazing, so prominent, to where it will have a lasting legacy that will even go beyond our own deaths. But the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we live that way? How can we do that as followers of Jesus? And the answer leads me to my final point. <clears throat> the way Christians can be truly significant. Follow with me as I read again, 30 to 31, where we read, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now there's a lot that Paul is saying here, but the thing I first want to make sure that you catch is what he says at the end of 31. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That's a very important statement. Why? Because in that statement alone, Paul is saying something very profound to us that we need to grasp. And it's this. This desire to be significant, says Paul, is actually okay. Not only is it okay, but this desire to be significant is actually more than that. It's a need to be significant. Paul is validating the idea that we all, as human beings, we need to boast in something, which is simply another way of saying we need to find significance in something, right? We need to find our significance in something. This is undeniable. This is how God created us. Again, Pastor Joel Stoll says this, we are built for significance. All of us are driven by the compelling need to believe that we are significant. I have yet to meet the person who says, significance? I couldn't care less. All I want to do is just fill space on this planet. Everyone wants to count for something. We yearn to believe that in some way we are important. <coughs> this inner drive is as intense as our need for water and oxygen. Our problem, however, is that we look for significance in all the wrong places. We pursue prosperity, power, positions, belonging, identity, and affirmation in hopes of finally securing a sense of value and worth. We are built for significance. That's nothing that you have to apologize for. We are built to feel like we matter. But Paul wants to make sure that the thing that we look to for our significance can actually satisfy this need to be significant. And according to him, there's only one way to do it. It's in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, let the one who wants to be significant, boast in the Lord. Find significance in the Lord. In other words, the only way you can be significant, Christian and human being, 
is only in God. Why? Because of what Paul lists in verse 30. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now what are those three things? Righteousness, sanctification, what are those? You know what those are? Those are things that God gives us. Things that we need from God. Things that only God can give us. We need from God righteousness. Because without God, we are unrighteous. We are wicked. We are perverted. We are evil. We need from God sanctification. You know why? Because without God, we are corrupt. Okay? We are dirty. We are wicked. We need from God redemption. You know why? Because apart from God, we are enslaved. We have no control. Right? And we are condemned. We are no good for nothing except being dead. Because we deserve to be judged by Him. Right? We need these things from God. And you know how God gives these things to us? Through the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God, who is the most significant person ever, and therefore worthy to live forever, nevertheless became a man, Jesus Christ, so he could die the most undeserving the most humiliating, the most shameful death ever. Why? So that you, hear me when I say this, so that you could be worthy of something you could never deserve. Something that no amount of wisdom, no amount of success, no amount of intelligence, no amount of beauty could ever make you deserving of. Eternal life. To never die. Right? The only way you can have this eternal life is if God gives it to you. And the way he gives it to you is by giving you righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That is how you acquire eternal life, by God giving you these things to where you now become worthy of something you could never deserve. No matter how significant the world says, you may think you are, but you're not really. Okay? Righteousness. Where you live a life of good conduct and ethical living. Where instead of cheating on your spouse, you're faithful to your spouse. Sanctification, where you change for the better. To where instead of being more corrupt by the influences of the world, you're actually changing the world with positive influence to make it better. Redemption, to where instead of losing control and you're an addict to things that you have no power over, you're able to overcome these things. Whether it be gambling, pornography, alcohol, drugs, whatever it may be. You're free from the power of sin thereby making you worthy because the power of the Spirit has made you worthy in inheriting eternal life. Do you see? These three things, redemption, sanctification, righteousness, they're yours because of who God is and what he's done through in Jesus. And the way that you acquire these these three things are by three simple steps. First, acknowledge your sin and confess them to God with a repentant heart. Number two, Commit your life to Him by making Him the Lord of your life where you're exclusively devoted to Him and to Him alone. And number three, you acknowledge the underlying reason why Jesus did all of it. Which is what? Because He loves you. If you want to know why God, who could never deserve to die, came into this world as Jesus to where He was willing to die the most undeserving death ever, it's because He loves you you he loves you he loves you yes he loves you 
Even when you hated him, when you despised him, when you rejected him, when you wanted nothing to do with him, when you rebelled against him, when you sinned against him, he loves you. See, and when you understand that, and when you start really letting that sink in, to where it no longer just becomes a mental thing, but a real heart-burning issue, then you start being able to satisfy your significance in the legitimate way. To where any other way of trying to be significant, whether it be through your finances, your looks, your success, no longer attractive to you. You know why? Because as I said before, if you base your significance on something like that, at some point it's going to be taken away, right? I'm sorry, ladies, as, as beautiful as you look today, right? I'm sorry, brothers. <clears throat> you can bench 250 now, but, you know, you can control your bladder now, but you can jump and dunk a basketball now, but you can sing with Mariah now. Well, not Mariah today, but Mariah she used to be. Even Mariah, <laughs> right? You, you've heard her latest live version of All I Want for Christmas is You at Rock. Oh man, it was bad. Right? The shadows of death will come upon any worldly significance that you try to attach. But if you attach the foundation of your significance on the love of God, <clears throat> the love of God that can never die, how do I know it can never die? Because when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead, Right? Do you know one of the reasons why Jesus rose again is so that his love for you can never die? Do you know that? When you base your significance on something that cannot decay, that cannot erode, <clears throat> that even death itself cannot rob you of, you have a solid foundation to be significant permanently. To where now that you have it, you don't need to keep chasing after it or cutting people down or competing against others to have it. You have it secure and in full in Jesus. The question is, do you believe that? And have you embraced it? Brothers, sisters, <clears throat> we live in a city that is constantly trying to persuade you to chase after worldly significance. And I'm asking you to heed the words of Paul, heed the words of scripture, that the significance that you are to chase for is not of this world and it's not in any category that this city tries to define for you. It's found in Jesus. If you want to find something to boast in, if you want something to have significance in, let it be in the Lord and in the Lord alone. So that you can finally <clears throat> be worthy of something that you can never deserve. The life of God himself. Eternal life. At this point, I want to end my message by offering next steps for you to think about, to personally apply. <clears throat> and number one, it begins, first of all, for those of you here visiting us today, if you're not a Christian, but today's message has now got you to a point where you're ready to become one, take this time now to go to the Lord and pray, acknowledging these three things that I mentioned earlier. First, acknowledging your sins, confessing them with a repentant heart, commit your life to him as an exclusive devoted follower of his, and recognize this reason of God's love for you as to why he did it all. And then, for the rest of us, number two, take some time and honestly assess what is the basis of your significance? Is it based in Jesus or is it based in the world? Right? And if you have a hard time, I really recommend a powerful book that I based this message on called Perilous Pursuits by Joseph Stoll. <clears throat> Great book. Something that I'm 
currently reading through my devotions with the Bible. Number three, ask a fellow Oikos group member to be your accountability partner. You need somebody in there to say, you know what? You're being a little delusional. You're acting like a Peter Whalen right now. You're acting like you're something when you're not. Snap out of it, right? And help me snap out of it too because I, I struggle with it. Too. Or you can read the book together. Right? Pray for one another. Do something in your life with one another so that you can encourage each other to chase after true significance and not false significance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us to really live out today's message. <clears throat> it's so easy for us. And I'm the first to admit that I constantly fail in this area of my life. Father, as we live in a world where things are bigger, brighter, faster, <clears throat> and more, just more beautiful in the worldly sense, Lord, we are so easily enchanted to chase after <clears throat> something that is not even there, a false mirage that promises a sense of significance, that promises a sense of a counterfeit gospel, of eternal life, of fame, of power, of remembrance. And yet, Lord, we know that none of these things are true to the core. Father, <clears throat> protect us from the delusion of the world that <clears throat> is filled with people who think that they are gods when in fact, like us, they are mere mortals who one day will die and the shadows of death will be upon them soon. God, help us to escape that shame and instead to face boldly with confidence the joy that we have in the gospel of Christ. I pray that as we continue to move forward as a family of faith, that the thing that would mark us out in the witness of this city is that we would be a people who is not caught up <clears throat> by all the things that is so prominent and so crazy in this hashtag world that we live in. Help us instead to base our significance on something that will go beyond <clears throat> what is cool and hip today, but will endure to all eternity. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.